Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us the wonderful opportunity to look at this, uh, this great document that was made so many years ago, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We know that it is not uh, your word directly, but we're thankful for those teachers whom you have used uh, throughout the ages to help us to better understand your word, which is, your, your Bible, which is your word for us. And so as we look at this, um, this catechism, we pray that we would have greater insight into the teaching of Scripture, that we would be reminded again of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ and how we can respond in gratitude. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, a lot of stuff to do today. Uh, we've been working through um, the catechism questions that deal with the offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. We've already looked at prophet. Last week we looked at priest. Today we're going to look at question number 26, king. What does it mean that Jesus is a king? So uh, let's go ahead and turn there. Again, your catechisms are either uh, in the back of your Trinity hymnal, somewhere in the um, uh, 870s, is it? 871, somewhere in there. And, um, of course, you might have your own personal copy. I know most of you probably don't even need that because you've memorized it, as all school children do before the age of six. So I'm sure you'll all be good on that front. But also have your Bibles because we're going to be looking at some Scripture passages as well. So will somebody read question 26 with its answer, please? We're beginning to learn how the catechism works, how they use commas and so on to delineate what today we would call bullet points, you know, that kind of thing. And so it tells us that Christ executes, that is, he carries out the office of a king, and then it gives us these three bullet points. He subdues us to himself. And I'm not going to spend very much time on these. These are almost self-explanatory, but I want to look at the implications of them. But okay, he subdues us to himself. So his first conquest as a king is us, right? He conquers our sinful natures. He gives us a new nature. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 3. Uh, remember, that's a messianic psalm. The king is being addressed as the coming Messiah. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. So, you know, we are subdued. We become a people whose wills are changed. Now, we've looked at that when we looked at what happens to us. We'll explore that even more further. So I'm not going to unpack that. But the first conquest of Christ as a king is us. We were his enemies, Paul tells us in Romans 8. Now we become his people, right? So he subdues us to himself. Then he rules and defends us. Now that he's made us his people, he is our ruler and our defender, right? Um, I'm just going to throw some of these out. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two: for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us, right? So he's ruling over us. He's defending us. Isaiah 32, first two verses. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. So, okay, there's so many passages on the kingship of Christ. So that just gives you an idea. And not only does he defend us, but he restrains and he conquers all his and our enemies. Right? And so we can take something like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 which we looked at not too long ago during Easter. For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. So there's a language of reigning, right? He is a king. 
All right, when he was uh, crucified, they put over his head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That was meant to be ironic, but God uses that to make clear he is a king. When the thief is dying, do you remember what he says? Um, let's see, did I put it here? Yeah, uh, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right, and Jesus says, responds today, you shall be with me in paradise. So there is a kingdom. He is a king. What we want to do today is now take what we've looked at and begin to unpack it. What does it mean that Jesus is king? And there's three different areas that we're going to be looking at. One is whether Jesus is king now or in the future. And that's something that we have to establish because it may sound straightforward, but uh, Bible-believing Christians are actually divided on this issue. Is Jesus king now or will Jesus be king when he returns? What's your take? Say again? Now? My mom's always right, so discussion's <laughs> over. Now. Now, right? It is a spiritual reality right now, right? That Jesus is king right now. Now, there's a view that some of you may be very familiar with, uh, perhaps even likely grew up. Unless you grew up in a mainline church, you know, a PCUSA or Methodist or Lutheran or something like that. Uh, if you grew up in anything that would use the term evangelical, you probably were exposed and maybe even knew that that's what you were holding to, a view called dispensationalism. Now, what dispensationalism teaches is that God has been at work throughout the scriptures in different ways in different eras. It's sort of an artificial system of looking at these certain periods. Now, the word dispensation itself is nothing wrong with it. It's actually in our confession uh, we, we can see that how God dealt with man during the time of Noah, the time of Abraham, the time of Moses, the time of the kings like David. There are differences, and you have to, to recognize that. In dispensationalism, those differences are hard and fast. So that, for example, in the time of Moses, God dealt with the people through law. So it was your obedience to the law that would save you. If you did not obey the law, you were out. If you obeyed the law, you were in. So that's how they saw it. Then, in the time of, of Christ, God deals with people according to grace. So in dispensationalism, it's that hard and fast. Now, the typical, not just reform view, but in um, the whole Christian world outside of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism, just so you know, if you grew up in a Baptistic or Bible church that teaches that, you would think that's what Christians have always known and understood. Dispensationalism started around 1870, didn't really pick up steam. Started um, the guy uh, called John Darby in uh, England. Sometimes you hear it called Darbyism, but that term is not much used. Pretty much died uh, along with Christianity <laughs> in, in the UK. Uh, but in the US, it grabbed a hold right around the turn of the century, 1910, that kind of thing, with a guy called Schofield. And you've heard of maybe the Schofield Bible. Perhaps you had a Schofield Bible. Now, our dispensational brothers and sisters are to be commended because they go to the Bible. And it was because of the modernist controversy, that is the rise of liberalism in the church. When there, see, there was no evangelical churches. You just had these different major denominations that all used to agree on the, on the core of the scripture the core of Christian belief, and then they had these other things in which they differed, infant baptism or mode of the Lord's Supper, all that. But they had this core, and as modernism came and swept through that, that core dropped away, and 
our brothers and sisters who are today dispensationalists, to their credit, stood firm and said the word of God is true and it's infallible and it's inerrant and we have to hold to it. And so these are our brothers and sisters and we have to always understand that. This is an intramural discussion. Um, But that doesn't make them any more right just because of that. So what dispensationalism has failed to understand is that all throughout the ages, God has always dealt with law. We have law right now. Uh, Law is what we are expect. Law gives us, uh, tells us how we are to live as redeemed people. So God has always put his law and the way he's always dealt with those who failed to keep his law, both in the Mosaic time and now, is through grace. So those things have always been operative. But the reason I bring up dispensationalism is that in its hard and fast cutting off of these different eras and dispensations, Christ as a king is something that is a future reality. The idea is that Jesus, if you've ever sat through, and you, know, and you have to have tons and tons of charts if you're a dispensationalist, uh, it's actually necessary to kind of make some leaps and jumps. It's like um, some of you who might be a little scientifically or mathematically minded. Um, before Copernicus showed the simplicity of the sun of the center and the planets in orbit around the sun, elliptical, not complete circles, the idea that the earth was at the center, you can make that work mathematically. But they had to have uh, all these, uh, the sun and the moon and everything else that went around had all these increasingly sophisticated you know, they, they go this way, then they stop and they go that way, and then there's orbits and within orbit, all that. They just had all these mathematical things to make the, the numbers work so you can predict when the moon would rise and all that other stuff. It was just the wrong model of reality. The same thing happens with dispensationalism. It's very complex in order to make it work. Well, this is not a class on dispensationalism, but the point is they saw it this way. When Jesus first came, he came and offered himself as a king to the Jews. The Jews rejected him, and in so rejecting, he put the idea of kingship on hold and then turned to the church. And so that the church, in fact, this is dispensational language. This is not me mocking or in any way disparaging. They see the church as a parenthesis, right? The age of the kingship of Christ stops with his death and resurrection. Then there's the age of the church in which Gentiles are brought in. And then when he returns the kingship will start again, right? That's a typical dispensational view. You can see it in your Schofield Bible, in your Ryrie Bible. Charles Ryrie popularized it in the 30s and 40s here in the U.S. If there had been no modernism, I think dispensationalism would have probably died. But because our dispensational brothers stood firm against modernists as they should have, uh, the view of dispensationalism grabbed hold. And so maybe this is what you've been exposed to, but is that in case, is that in fact the case? No, when we look at scripture, we see that the kingship of Christ, his reign is even now, it's present, it's a spiritual present reality. And again, this could be a whole Sunday school class. I'm just gonna touch on some things, give you a few passages, we're gonna move on to the next point. But I just want you to see that. Anecdotally, let me say this, usually our evangelical, broader evangelical brothers and sisters are usually better in their practice than in their profession. That's always been the case because the Spirit is at work in us and so on. So like, for example, those who deny infant baptism. If you deny your infant baptism, little Johnny should be treated as a pagan until he makes a profession of faith. And yet we let him sit at the table and he prays with us and everything else. You know, So their practice is usually better and we're thankful for that. And they have that desire to dedicate their babies, do everything just short of the sign of the sacrament. 
So we're thankful for, you know, the Spirit being at work in that regard. And the same thing happens here. Every time that a Baptist prays to Jesus, what's he doing? He's acknowledging that he reigns. (laughs) Don't you see? That he has rule over the world. So thankfully, their practice is better than profession. But that is one of the strong points. We pray. And we believe that Jesus can make a difference. Well, he can make a difference because he rules. If he rules, therefore he reigns. Therefore he's king. But let's take a look at a few things that we want to see that are clear teachings of Scripture. One is, as I said now, the kingdom of Christ is already in existence. It's a present spiritual reality. Notice I said spiritual, and I don't have time to get into that today. That's a problem that evangelicals also wrestle with. If you are as um, discouraged, or whatever word you want to use, with um, the rise of sexual immorality at every level and the insanity of trans this and that and whatever. Look, stuff like this has been going on since the 60s. In the 1970s, uh, evangelical Christians responded by trying to pass legislation, and that didn't work. Some of you might remember, um, oh, I'm trying to remember her name, but Phyllis Schlafly and some of the others that were involved, Anita, what was her name? Uh, against the, yeah, Anita Bryan against the ERA. Good women, good views. I'm not knocking what they were trying to do politically, but there was this marriage of this idea that Christians, through legislation, will turn the, the clock back. It's never worked. It's a story for another day. It will never work. When we thought, oh, we passed the Defense of Marriage Act against homosexuality, it's over. Within 15 years, you got homosexual marriage. The point is you're not going to change hearts through legislation. The kingdom is a present spiritual reality, and uh, our continued attempts as evangelicals to make it a physical reality is going to go bust every single time. It's a story for another day. That's the point there. Uh, You can see it. In passages like Colossians 1.13, there's tons of others. It tells us that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his precious, or some translations, his dear son. So it's actually something that right now he's taken us from here and he's put us in there. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says the same thing. Uh, you know, don't you know that neither the, the, the adulterers and the sexually immoral and the homosexuals and the idolaters and so on will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the power of the Spirit in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, those all show that you have been translated from, and, and the, the Colossians 1.13 passage is very clear. You've been delivered from the power of darkness, and it literally says translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. That kingdom is there. That's why you've, you're in it now. So it's a present spiritual reality. It is also, because it is spiritual, it's also invisible. Also invisible, right? Jesus says in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. He says in Luke 17, 20, the kingdom of God does not come in ways that can be observed. I just modify the Greek there a little bit does not come with observation, does not come in a way that we can see. So it is a pres- it is present, 
but it's spiritual and is therefore invisible, right? And that will mean something when we start talking about why do we have popes and bishops who sit on thrones when a, when a bishop, whether he's Lutheran, Anglican, um, Roman Catholic, uh, when he is installed, they call it his enthronement. And it comes from the medieval era and where uh, bishops essentially took uh, as the Roman Empire lost power and basically it never really fell per se. It just kind of transformed. And the people who took power were not civil rulers. They were ecclesiastical rulers. It becomes very visible. And this is telling us that's not the case. Uh, last thing we want to say about the kingdom that's also scriptural is that it's a kingdom that will never end. So it is never ending. Eternal. Right, um, I'll just give you some passages without looking them up. Daniel 2.44, where it says the kingdom will not end. 2 Peter 1.11, right? 1 Corinthians 15.24, again, the passage on resurrection that we looked at in Easter, uh, says that, yes, it is moving towards a more perfect state of things at the end of the world, but it's ongoing now, and it's just going to be continuing on from there. So what this does, when we look at all these passages, it helps us to see uh, that the kingdom is a present reality. It's right now. So that means that Christ is king now. Our dispensational brothers in that regard uh, have it wrong. Jesus will not become king. He is king. That changes how you look at passages like uh, Matthew 5 through 7. That's the so-called Sermon on the Mount. If you're a dispensationalist, if you're an, uh, an evangelical in that regard... The Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to you. It's what will be in the future. And we will teach the Sermon on the Mount applies right now because Jesus is king and he rules over his people and those are guidelines for how we are to live. Phil. Uh, the church is going forward and making many, many converts and, and so on. Um, they look at Romans chapter 9 where it talks about God at work through the church to make Israel jealous, as it were. Israel will look and say, wait a minute, we were, we were it and now the church is it. Again, there's all truth in that, but they make it so hard and fast that Israel is, and the church become two different things. Israel remains the people of God. The church is not. It's one of the most interesting things about dispensationalism. I remember talking to a friend of mine. He was Assembly of God minister. Um, this strong dispensationalist and all that, strong believer in the supremacy of Israel, and to the point where he says you cannot touch God's anointed, which is you know the line that David said about Saul. So they're God's anointed. You can't touch them. And we were in the military at the time, and he would say, yeah, if we're given ever the, the order to attack, I will not. You know, Israel, that is. You know, we will not attack them. And um, I would say, so if somebody were to break into your house and rape your wife and kill your children, and he was a Jew, you would not defend them? No. He would leave them. I said, yeah, you're nuts. Okay, you're nuts. Um, he was being consistent. To his credit, I suspected if it actually happened, he'd shoot the guy dead, and then he would see a little star of David, and he'd go and repent or something. He'd come to me, and I'd say, "It's fine, Dominus Onus, you're all good." 
Um, but, you know, um, that is their view on that. That's how they deal with that. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, their, their belief is that the church now is gaining all these people that's going to make Israel jealous and that Israel will come in in the last days. So, all right, any other questions about the present reality of the kingdom, that Christ is king now? Yeah, if I start going down this path, we're going to be here a long time. Yeah, I think, I'm, uh, given our time, I'm not sure I want to take that rabbit trail. It's, it's, it's worth discussing. Good question. Uh, I'll simply say this. It's not hard to look at Romans 9, 10, 3, 11, actually, the whole section. And once you put on a different set of lenses, it really falls into place. At first, you know, it's like, but it says uh, the church is... Uh, the Old, Old Testament Israel, Israel in the Old Testament is the church. The church today includes many Jews, all those apostles, and the many, many people in Jerusalem, and so on, and continues to have many Jews. But it, the church is now transnational. It no longer applies to one particular group. That there is a nation that has come back, you know, after nearly 2,000 years, that doesn't mean that those are God's people. Uh, you know, per se. Let me tell you this. Um, we have spent billions of dollars in foreign national, po- you know, and, uh, because our foreign policy is pro-Israel. By the way, it's the only democracy in that part of the world. It's worth supporting. Whatever, you know, you want to say, Israel's not perfect. Whatever you might say about the Palestinians, there are sometimes atrocities being committed on both sides. Whatever. They're not, you know, perfect people. Uh, I'm not saying, though, we should not support them as a nation and so on. But I think a whole lot of what we've done is because of dispensational um, um, support. That may be waning, but it's, it's there. When you talk to our friends next door, their biggest objection, with, or not biggest, but one of their big objections to Christianity is our elevating Israel. It's a wonderful thing when you can tell them, oh yeah, most Christians, it's only a small group since the 1880s that hold to that. And yeah, they're here in America but they're nowhere else in the world, thankfully. And, you know, and just let them know. We don't believe this stuff. Um, to give you an idea, I'll just simply say this about dispensationalism to help us understand some of the... Uh, if you follow it to its logical conclusion, how it becomes absurd. Well, you know what? Let's hold that. Let's hold that uh, when we get to millennial views. I do want to talk about one other thing here. So what I wanted to establish here is that Christ is king right now, it is happening right now. It's not a future thing. The next thing I want us to take a look at is the relationship between the church and the kingdom. Is the church the kingdom, or are they two separate things? That's, that's an implication of what we've just talked about. If Christ is king right now, and the church is operating right now, and the church is, you know, we are in his kingdom, is the church his kingdom? Okay, we've got one strong yes, said with some conviction. Is Matt right? How many of you agree with Matt? <laughs> church is the bride. Okay. I think that was a yes. You're all wrong. 
<laughs> Sorry. It's because I love you and feel comfortable enough that I could have just said that. You know, I wouldn't say that if I were speaking somewhere else. Um, nor would I have asked the question to put you on the spot. No. Um, it is a common under, uh, misunderstanding, I think, because of the close relationship. But the church is not the kingdom. Let's take a look at somebody who believes that the church is the kingdom. That's the Roman Catholic Church. Right? So in the Roman Catholic Church, let's see. Um, how do I want to do that? Yep, yep, yep. Actually, let's take our dispensational brothers uh, again. So in dispensationalism, you've got the church and you've got the kingdom and they don't come together at all because remember, the church is a parenthesis. Jesus is not king now. He will be king when he returns. So the kingdom will come at the start of the millennium, at the return of Christ, we're going to talk about the millennial views in just a moment. The church operates now. There is no connection between church and kingdom. That's why you will hear dispensational tell you that the Sermon on the Mount, which is kingdom theology and rules for how God's people conduct themselves in the kingdom, doesn't apply. The church has its own rules. The kingdom has its own rules. That's a very strong setup. So we already kind of discussed that in discussing dispensationalism. Yeah, exactly. And if you can't begin to see the parallels between that and JW's, Jehovah's Witnesses, and doesn't make you, oh, maybe that's not quite right. You know, those parallels are there. So let's take our other friends. Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism says the church and the kingdom are the same thing. So for them, there is a unity. The church is the kingdom. Now, we want everything to be under the lordship of Christ. So if that's the case, then everything must be under the church. And this is why the Roman Catholic Church consistently throughout the ages has tried to subsume everything. Because if the church is the kingdom and everything ought to be under the, king, the kingly rule of Christ, that means you must be under the church and you must be under those whom God has placed as rulers of the church, the vicars, the bishops, right? The, the vicar of Christ is the pope. Everything must be under the pope. And so is it true that guys use this for all sorts of excuses and for temporal power and all that? And there were ex- abuses in the, medieval, in, the, in the Middle Ages and there were guys who held three bishoprics just so they can get the extra income from each because you know, there was taxes that supported the bishoprics and so on. Yeah, absolutely. But the system itself has been pretty consistent over the ages. The idea is, that's a good song, the idea is that the church, being the kingdom, must have everything answerable to it. Kings, civil kings, must answer to the church. Judges, everything is under the rule of the church. That's the Roman Catholic position. Um, Schools. You know, labor unions, political parties, um, I can go on and on. All those have to be under the church, which means under his vicar. Vicar is, a, you know, you talk about vicarious, somebody who does something in your place. The pope is the vicar. He's, he is Christ on earth. So now you understand why they do what they do. It's a consistent view. But that's not been typically the reform view. The reform view is that the, 
the kingdom, and uh, let's use green for that. Does my green work? I think it does not. Let's use black because we're reformed and so therefore we're somber and sober. We'll use black. Um, so the reform view. So actually I want to do two diagrams. Whoops, kingdom and the church. Um, hopefully the overlap's a little bigger but then you can't see the labels. Um, so the kingdom is everything over which Christ rules. But it's not only the church. The church is part of the kingdom. Part of the kingdom, but it's not the only thing. Typically, we have understood, and it's interesting that these groups will also accept what I'm about to write, but it's inconsistent. It doesn't fit. As, as with all theology, the idea is that every last piece has to fit. And um, thankfully, others hold to things that are correct, just they can't fit it into their system. But we believe that there's three spheres of authority. Anybody knows what those are? Three spheres of authority. Have you ever heard of the terms sphere sovereignty, that kind of thing? Family? Family, civil, yeah. And ecclesiastical or church. You know, so you can say family, church, uh, family, government. I mean, they're all governments in one sense. So that's the family, civil government, and the church. And some people, of course, say there's the individual. You rule yourself, you know, you, you are. But let's just set that aside for a moment, and we're talking about sort of having somebody over you, somebody to whom you submit. And the father is the head of the home, the, both parents. Uh, the father has primary responsibility. The civil government, real Romans 13, tells us that the civil ruler is instituted by God. His authority is real. It's derivative authority, but it's authority nonetheless, and it's given by God, and even if he is Caesar, even if he's not God-fearing, we are to submit to him, and so on. And then, of course, the church, God puts his rulers, elders who rule in his place, and so on and so on. Every one of these is under the headship of Christ. See, See, that's the thing. Every one of these, not just the church. Can you have churches that have shaken off the headship of Christ? Yeah, you know. PCUSA is running out there and just and other denominations that, you know, set aside what God teaches in the Bible. Do you have civil rulers who set aside the rule of Christ? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, do you have families that set aside the rule of Christ? Yeah. So uh, you can resist Christ's headship, but the idea is Christ is ruler over all of those. And um, Again, will he subdue us? Will he, it tells us that he will eventually restrain and conquer all his and our enemies, the catechism question says. So these will not remain forever in rebellion against him. Uh, but, you know, we find ourselves in all three of these spheres. We're in families. We have a civil government over us. We're in the church. And we are to work towards all those submitting to Christ. So the reform view has always been that Christ is head over all these different things. He is sovereign over everything. So his lordship has always been a big thing in, in reformed understanding. The, refor- the sovereignty, the reformed, uh, uh, the lordship of Christ is, is huge. You know, people talk about uh, Calvinists believe in the sovereignty of God. That can never be said without saying, and the lordship of Christ as an expression of that sovereignty. He rules even now, Revelation 4 and 5, shows that the lamb has taken, he sits on the throne in Revelation 5. Revelation 4 shows us the throne room, shows us heaven, shows us that there's a crisis. Who's going to rule the universe? The church is under persecution. Who is going to unfold history? 
the lamb. Makes his appearance in chapter 5. It's a dramatic moment. They all turn. So really, the chapters are not there in the original. That's just uh, it's, it's one story. John turns. There's the lamb, uh, the one who looks like he's been crucified but now arisen. He sits on the throne. He's given the scroll that no one else is worthy to open. What is that scroll? It's God's eternal decree. It's what God wants the universe to be. And only Jesus can break the seals and unfold history in perfect accord with God's decree. He rules and he reigns in accord with his Father, something he said all the time. It's your will, not my will. And you know, I'm here to do the will. That's my food and so on. Jesus is reigning even now. When disasters come into our life, whether they be personal tragedies, national disasters, whatever, all of that, Jesus is this unfolding history. And he rules over all of that. And we are to then bring all three of these under the lordship of Christ. And until the last day, we're going to know, we know that there are those in rebellion against that and it won't be perfect. But we see his headship is over all things. So the kingdom and the church overlap. There are other things in the kingdom that's not the church. So, you know, I would put these circles up here. Civil, family, right? They will all intersect. And I leave some out because... There are people in the church who don't belong to the kingdom. Those are people who say, I'm a Christian. You know, I go to such and such, you know, church, but they're not really believers, okay? I could do the same thing here. We have some families that submit, and we have some families that don't submit. We have governments, some that do submit, right? So the president in Kenya is saying that sexual immorality will not be tolerated, and he has said why. Because God says it's wrong, so he's passing legislation, which is driving the LGBTQIA, WTF people nuts. And here in our country, it's the other way around. So we can do the same thing, church, family, civil authority. We can put them up here and we can say the same thing. Not, they don't all overlap. They don't all, it's not a perfect intersection. It will be when Jesus returns, but for now, it's not. So the kingdom and the church are separate in that regard. Does that make sense? Okay, let me just say a few more things here. Uh, what can we say about the kingdom if we, if we look at it this way, the kingdom and the church? What is different? What is the same? They are not the same thing, but what are characteristics that are the same? Let me just hit on these. I've already discussed them, but I'm going to put them systematically so you can follow. What is the same in terms of the church and the kingdom? Well, Jesus is king and head over both. Jesus is the head of the kingdom. He's the head of the church, right? True believers belong to both and must belong to both. And I'll say you cannot be one without being in the other. You can't be in the kingdom, truly a member of God's kingdom, one of his people, and yet not be in the church, part of the body of Christ. You see all these metaphors, but help us to understand. Vice versa, you can't be in the church, truly a member of the body of Christ. Not the hypocrites, and that's the word that Jesus uses. I don't use it for those who are in the church, but outside of the kingdom. He calls them hypocrites. Um, you can't be truly a member of the body of Christ and not be part of his rule. So you can't go around saying, well, yes, back when I was 19, I gave my life to Jesus and he became my savior. But it was at 35 when I finally made him my Lord. You hear stuff like that and it's not, not possible. It's at 35. If that's when you finally began to submit to Christ, that's when you really were saved. So that's when he became your Lord and savior. So those, those things come together. All these are implications of this doctrine. That's why doctrine matters, because all these things that we teach and how we live our lives are going to be impacted by what we believe. So, uh, but there are some differences. Um, and uh, the one that I do want to point out, the biggest one, is that the church has a visible form. Sometimes you hear us talk about the visible church and the invisible church. The invisible church are 
true believers, including those who have gone before us. We don't see them. And the visible church is what you see here. People come and they show up and they become members and they sign up and, you know, whatever. And yet they're not all believers. So that's the visible church. The kingdom is invisible. And we already talked about that just a moment ago. It's present spiritual reality, but it's an invisible one. So there is that difference. The other difference is that the church has the keys to the kingdom, right? I won't get, uh, read that whole passage. It's in Matthew 16, verse 19 and following, and it talks about Jesus saying, I give you the, kings, the keys of the kingdom. Now, that's a whole discussion is what does that mean? Does it mean that, uh, that pastors literally can go around, you're in, you're not, you know? Actually, yes, but it doesn't happen because of any inherent power. It's through the preaching of the word. It's through the opening up and saying, if you repent and if you entrust your, your, your life to Christ, then we can declare to you, your sins are forgiven because of the certainty of what God has said. If you don't do that, we can tell you, you are not going to heaven because, again, of the certainty of the scripture. So that's where that comes from. That's a whole story and a whole lesson for some other time we can unpack that. But the point is, the, the, the church is the means that God uses to bring people into the kingdom. Not the kingdom, but it's the means that God uses to bring people into the kingdom. And therefore, that means also that the church has a much narrower task than the kingdom. And its job is that of bringing people in, uniting them to Christ, becoming part of the kingdom. So I'm going to hold off there because we're almost out of time. The church, the kingdom, they're not the same. Closely related and there's our view versus one of these. So now I know who the closet Roman Catholics are. And uh, I can always count on Matt to give me some good stuff to work off of. Because, see, he's a teacher. He does that just so that I have work, stuff to, to work off of. Um, any questions about the church and the kingdom and their relationship one to the other? Or comments? The kingdom of God is the invisible church. No, because, again, it includes civil government and families and all that other stuff. Now, the families will be in the kingdom, but certainly things like the civil government is not the body of Christ. So I, st- I know what you're going with that. Uh, I think we can say that the invisible church is wholly within the kingdom. So invisible church is that section there. I think that would be a fair statement to say. Whereas this is the entire visible church. What people see. Yesterday we saw the visible church in the UK. Did you all get up at 5.30? Um, I did for, for Presbytery, not for, <laughs> not for that. And so King Charles was, you know, in a very Christian ceremony. I, I did watch, you know, the little clips. And in comes, you know, the, the, the bishop and whatever, the Archbishop of Canterbury, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and he swears that he'll be the defender of the faith and blah, 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 you know, all that other stuff. I have a feeling there was a whole lot of visible church going on there. Maybe not a whole lot of invisible could be wrong. Yeah, and yet every one of his statements before then, unlike uh, Elizabeth, uh, now I, you know, I have some concerns with Elizabeth, what kind of mom she was, but she was very clear in her Christian faith again and again and again through the years. And actually as she got older, she was more uh, explicit. This is often the case as we mature and, and grow. Um, Charles, on the other hand, was very, very clear. Uh, and it's kind of funny, the, the, the new prime minister the, the mayor of London is now a Hindu, uh, nor Muslim, and the prime minister is a Hindu. Uh, the mayor of London had no role to play in the ceremony that I saw. 
because um, even Westminster Abbey is not even technically part of London. But it's in London. It's not. It's a little, it's, it's okay. You've got to live there and you'll know it's its own like district. It's like D.C. or something. Um, but uh, um, um, the prime minister read and he said, I don't know if you saw it, he's reading this thing and then he stops and says, and this is, reads from the New Testament, this is the word of the Lord. I'm like, yes, even the Hindu has to profess, whether he believes it or not. But, you know, so yeah, that's a good point, Matt. Invisible church is right there, is that section. Okay, um, to answer that, I was going to go into millennial views. Why don't we do this? Why don't I answer that question now? Because I could also have left that for next week. And can you guys hold on and we'll do the millennium? It may not be enough to fill a whole hour. It will depend on you guys. If you have questions about post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, amillennialism, the book of Revelation, we'll explain it all. It's so simple. It really is. No, it is. Once you drop the charts and once you, and you really look at the Bible, it's like, oh, that's what, you only think it's not because you've been fed all this stuff and you've been told the heliocentric circle, the, the, the geocentric circle. You've been seeing all that, and so you're like, no, it is astoundingly simple. Five-year-olds can get it. Okay, we'll discuss this. Let's talk about two-kingdom theology. Um, let me actually let you finish your question. It was, more, it was more just, if this isn't, what would you term this? Okay. Well, the reason to discuss two-kingdom theology is because it's, it's back in evangelical circles. It's back in reform circles. Um, we all seem to discover something every now and then, you know, rediscover, and then it becomes like the fad. It becomes something big, right? Uh, that happens in all walks of life. That's not just the church. So, you know, we've rediscovered in the last 20 years two-kingdom theology. What is it? What is it not? Let's, why don't we start with the what is it not, what I'm hearing out there, you know, listening to podcasts and so on. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Because if I'm hearing it, you're hearing it because you listen to, you know, these, these guys that are out there. Uh, you know, you might turn on John MacArthur, you might turn to Ligonier, you know, listen to Sinclair Ferguson, who now has a daily five-minute little uh, sh- uh, spiel that he does. Uh, I forget the name of it. Mary Jo listens to it. It's really good. I've heard it a few times. Um, and so on. Those are all safe guys. But you may be also listening to some guys who are not. Mo well, is the best. And you might come across some of this stuff. Um, so here's how two kingdom theology is being presented. We've had the error during the um, 70s, 80s, 90s, and so on that I already talked about of bringing in this idea that we're going through, legis- through legislation change things. And it hasn't worked. It's never changed a single heart. Right? Every time that we won a legislative victory against, um, let's say, the homosexual agenda, which really I, I like to put under the, the heading of sexual immorality. You've heard me use that term more than, because it's all the same. Uh, the 60s that said, well, of course, homosexuality and all that's wrong, but you can sleep with whoever you want, your husband and wife. You know, you don't have to be married. You can just, you know, th- th- that's all we're going to do. And of course, it's been expanding ever since. It's all under the heading of sexual immorality. And uh, my, my views, just so you know on that, is when somebody, you know, tells me, oh, that person is gay. We had an elder here at one time. Uh, he's, he's moved to Austin, a uh, really good elder. And um, his uh, brother-in-law, I think it was his brother-in-law, goes to one of the big churches I won't mention here in town. And um, uh, his brother-in-law came to him, and, and uh, I'm talking about J.T. Bora, J.T. Bora, uh, the elder. And he said, J.T., I, I've got a problem. And you, you, guys, you guys have um, 
um, experience with church discipline more than we do. Maybe you can help us out. And uh, JT's like, yeah, sure. What, what can I do? He says, well, we got this, this situation. This guy, this guy in church has committed the worst sin possible. And JT's like, murder? He says, no, he's gay. You know, um, that evangelical view that, you know, homosexuality is the very worst thing. And yet we'll sit there and we'll have somebody who divorced his wife and, you know, slept with another woman. But, okay, that's not too bad. Dominison is forgiven and all this. The church that JT used to be in, which is in this town, it's a Baptist church, and the pastor is still there, is divorced, but nobody in his congregation knows it. They won't let him be the pastor. So, you know, you got this kind of stuff that goes on. The, how did I get into two kingdom? The point is, sexual immorality, whether you're watching something on your computer, whether you're um, uh, sleeping before marriage, sleeping outside of marriage, even in the heterosexual sphere, it is no less vile and a transgression of the law of God than sleeping with somebody of the same sex or cutting off body parts and claiming you're another. All of it, all of it is under the rubric of sexual immorality. Anyway, the point is, we were pushing back against some of those things. Oh, look, the Defense of Marriage Act, 1996. Yay, it's marriage is safe and all that other stuff. Every time that we won a legislative victory, what did the homosexual lobby or whatever you want to call it do? They just, they didn't sit there and say, oh, good night, there's a law now. I've got to stop being gay. No, they, they regrouped. They, they got stronger and they came back harder. And that's going to happen every time. And we are going to lose every single time over time when, we, when that's our strategy. Why? Because Ephesians 2 tells us that the prince of the power of the air rules this world. So as long as we play on his turf with his rules, we're going to lose. So you've got guys who look at the Christian coalition of the 80s and 90s and the moral majority and all these attempts and they say it's not working and all of a sudden they sit there and say two kingdom theology that was in the reformation luther and calvin taught it oh now i know how to move forward so this is what you're hearing in a lot of podcasts they're saying two kingdom is church and civil okay that looks like what we just said a moment ago right there they don't have the family in there okay that that looks about right. I think I heard that from my pastor one day in Sunday school when we were discussing catechism question. And so they sit there and say, what do you do? Homosexuals are asking that they be treated the same. They want to get marriage. They want to get civil unions. Now, all this is now water under the bridge. has happened, you know. But um, when this was being put forward, how do I wrestle with that? I'm a Christian, but these are nice people, and why should I deny them insurance at work? You know, all that other stuff. Now, the scripture teaches very clearly marriage is between a husband and a wife. It is the very uh, uh, cornerstone of society. And we, if we had time, we would show how a stable marriage becomes the cornerstone of every aspect of society. It's what actually curtails crime. It's what perpetuates education. All of that comes from God's biblical model. And that the husband and the wife being male and female Two different sexes, not genders, two different sexes. Each contributes something that the other cannot. And the, the whole is greater than the sum of the two parts. Or the sum of the two parts is greater than the individual parts, right? You get something that really, all that is in Scripture. And we should be able to argue that and say, the benefits that are given to those who are married, tax benefits or whatever, are because of what the 
stable family contributes to society, and it's to uh, to help advance that. But we don't we don't think in those terms, and we want to be fair-minded, and we want to well, you know, yeah, I disagree what they're doing, but you know, Harry and Steve, they should at least get benefits at work and all that. So how do I reconcile? Oh, two kingdom theology comes along, and says, look, I live here in the church. And in the church, I can say homosexuality is wrong. But I'm also in the civil sphere, and, I'm a, you know, and I live in Sacramento, and there, this is coming before us here in, 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 the, in the, an election, and I can vote on the civil side for civil unions or marriage. But since these two are two separate things, I'm safe. I can be a Christian over here, and I can be a good citizen over there. Does that make sense? And that approach is... Um, very insidious, but it's everywhere. And it's been around for a while. Liberals love this approach, and they've been pushing this approach. Francis Schaeffer, who died in 82, 84, 82, somewhere around there, had been warning us, this is where we're going. And that is to tell you that you're, this is what the liberal world tells us, the secular world tells us, is the world is secular, which it's not, but that's the lie they tell you. The world is neutral, you can hold your private beliefs, but they are private. They stay in here, in your head. They must not affect anything outside. Have you heard that? Right? So take your Ten Commandments off my wall, and all of a sudden. They view their views as being neutral, and therefore those can be public. Whatever those pagan views are. Right? The very people who push postmodernism on us and tell us that nothing is neutral and everything has a bias believe that their view is neutral and is secular. But you can keep your, whether it's your Christian view, your Hindu view, oh, whatever, just keep it in your head, but don't bring it into the public sphere. And these guys who have been pushing two-kingdom theology have said, oh, yeah, that, that works perfectly. Now, is this new? No. You know who else? has in one sense held to this inconsistently because I just finished showing you the Roman Catholic Church believes that the church and the kingdom are the same and so everything needs to be brought under their, their rule, including the civil, but yet they still see the civil as completely separate so that if you go into a Roman Catholic school, you can, Mary Jo did, you can talk to her, and if you went to one, you can uh, attest to this, you'll go to um, religion class, and they'll teach you Genesis 1 through 2, that God created everything in six days, literally six days. And then you go to your science class, and in the same school, they'll teach you about evolution. And when you ask them, and I've asked this of Roman Catholic theologians, how do you reconcile? They say your faith and your intellect are two different things, and you can hold them in tension. Okay? To which I say the same thing I say to my friend from the Assembly of God. You're nuts, right? It does not make sense. So this is one of the things that's out there. Sounds very attractive. It gives you an out so that you can support your gay friends or whatever else is being pushed over here that you as a fair-minded, reasonable, you know, liberal person can hold to. Liberal even in the classic sense of liberal democracy, not progressive necessarily. And you can hold to that and still hold your faith over here. That is not at all what Luther and Calvin referred to, but you hear some of these guys constantly appealing back to the saying, this is not new, but we're teaching you this, this way out so you can vote for a civil union or gay marriage or whatever. It's not you, new. Luther and Calvin taught it. And you're like, oh, okay, that's good. It's not what Luther and Calvin taught. In the two minutes I have remaining, what did Luther and Calvin teach? 
it's, I've actually already put it out for, for you, that there's actually three spheres. All right, let's put the family back in there. And yes, they are distinct from each other, but Christ rules over all of them. So in the civil sphere, it should support biblical views of marriage and biblical views of everything else, how we spend our money and so on. The church as well, the family as well. They're all under the lordship of Christ. So in one sense, what Luther and, and Calvin were teaching is, is three kingdoms, if you want to call it that. One kingdom, but three, you know. And actually, um, Luther and Calvin, Calvin especially, Luther usually gets all this in proto form and then he has to run away before somebody kills him. So Calvin systematizes and cleans it up. And Calvin did not use the term kingdoms because he saw only one kingdom, the kingdom of Christ over all of it. That's what we're working towards. He, talk, he talked about spheres of sovereignty. Christ is to be sovereign here, he's to be sovereign here, he's to be sovereign here. And he went on to talk about how that is less so on this side of glory and we have to work towards it and that's why Geneva was meant to be a place where the civil government should submit and should listen to and should be ruled by what scripture says. But it was not under the headship of the church. In fact, they kind of reversed it over there. The church was being brought under the headship of the civil sphere because that's still what it was in the medieval era. They, had, they didn't quite break it away. Calvin did not get everything he wanted. Uh, and he argued constantly for that separation. So anyway, let's hold up there. Phil. Right. Oh no, he, he wants all three too. He's, he's always doing the same thing. He, before the fall, God ruled over all three of these. With the fall, we rebel against our, the headship of Christ. Maybe not Christ as we think of him today and so on, but we rebel against God as ruling in those areas. Uh, and then you, what we do is we put Satan there. Satan wants to be in that place. So on this side of glory, Jesus is ruler over all three, but we have elements of all three that are in rebellion against God. And in so doing, whether they are aware of it or not, the one that they submit to ultimately then is Satan. So in that regard, when we talk about Satan as ruler of this world, he rules their hearts. I know, our time. Yeah, we're going to have to stop there. He rules, he rules their hearts. Every one of us, uh, right, Ephesians 2, 1 uh, says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. As, and I, I'm not, I don't have the exact language, I'm drawing a blank, but as, you know, as you in the, um, basically belong to the power, to the prince of the power of the air. Um, we were under his dominion. And so uh, Luther basically points out, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that we already looked at, God, tra- Jesus translates us from the sphere of the devil to his, to the ki- from the kingdom of the devil to his kingdom. So, okay, let's stop there. There's a lot more. Let's hold it. Next week, we'll do millennial views, uh, all three of them, actually three and a half. Three and a half, yes. And um, we'll go from there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is king over all things, whether we recognize it or not. And we pray that you would increasingly work in us through your Holy Spirit to help us to submit in all areas of our lives, individual and family and civil and ecclesiastical, that we might bring all things under his lordship. Thank you that he has conquered us. Help us, uh, help him to continue, or enable him to continue to subdue our rebellious hearts. 
We want them to be in perfect accord with Christ and his word. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us so that all the world would submit to his lordship as we read about in Philippians 2, that that day will come when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Until then, Father, keep us faithful, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.